Hi, my name is Andre Gonoella. Welcome to the latest edition of the Burn Bag Podcast. Uh, we are continuing to cover uh, the Israel-Gaza war. Uh, today, I'm being joined by a special guest, uh, Carmiel Arbit. Uh, she is a non-resident senior fellow for Middle East programs and the Scowcroft Middle East Security Initiative at the Atlantic Council. Uh, her research focuses on, on U.S.-Israel relations, the peace process, Israeli and Palestinian politics, Congress, and broader issues affecting the Middle East. A co-founder of Keybridge Strategies, she has consulted for nonprofit organizations around the world, advancing public diplomacy, government relations, and community engagement strategies in the United States, Israel, Palestine, Cyprus, Sudan, Sri Lanka, and Mexico. She was previously the Director of Strategic Engagement in the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, or APAC, at their Office of Policy and Government Affairs in Washington, where she helped drive the organization's strategy for engaging key policymakers and influencers. Uh, prior to her time there, she also worked at the Brookings Institution's Center for Middle East Policy, and her research there focused on Israel, counterterrorism, and international security, uh, and so on. So that is quite the resume. Uh, so Carmiel, uh, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thanks so much for having me on, Andre. So could you please, before we really dive into what's been going on, could you please share a little bit about yourself uh, and what drove you to focus uh, on Israel in your career? Absolutely. Thanks so much. So I started focusing on Israel in my career really starting as early as uh, university level. I had been studying political science and studied abroad in Cyprus um, in a conflict resolution and mediation program where there were a handful of um, students who had been uh, prisoners. They were Palestinian prisoners held in Israel. And they had been released as part of a prisoner exchange. And while at the time I hadn't had much interest in the region, I certainly have heritage that ties me to it. My name is Hebrew. And I realized that because of my identity, there was going to be a certain expectation of me that I would have views on um, a region that had captivated the hearts and minds of so many around the world. And so from Cyprus, I actually moved um, to Tel Aviv, where I worked for an organization, the HL Education Center for Peace, known as the Geneva Initiative. It's a nonprofit that still exists today, working to build a two-state solution. Um, they had an office in Ramallah and an office in Tel Aviv, and we worked to promote peace. And it was actually the work that we did that when Ariel Sharon um, said that he was going to disengage unilaterally from Gaza, he said, well, it's either this or the Geneva Initiative. Um, and so in many ways, the war that is happening now is really a, a full circle um, for me in my personal career where I had worked on issues running up to Gaza disengagement um, and now find ourselves today really in dealing with the wake of that disengagement and the repercussions of how it was carried out. So I think, uh, you know, one term before we, you know, go any further that a lot of folks here uh, time and time again, when we talk about Israel, is this term about Zionism. So, Carmiel, I'd love for you to sort of provide the definition on, you know, what is Zionism? Because I feel like it's a very loaded term these days uh, and so on. Yeah, Zionism at its core just means it's, it's a movement. It's the right of self-determination and statehood for the Jewish people in their ancestral homeland. The vast majority of Jews feel some kind of connection or kinship to Israel and Zionism. Um, and we see that in, in wide polling. But in, in 
kind of recent times, particularly in the context of the conflict that's going on, Zionism has become a really charged term, um, one that is often used as racism. Uh, you often hear uh, people, including on the left, say things like Zionism is racism. Um, but really at its core, that's all that it means. It's the right of self-determination for the Jews. The modern Zionist movement has evolved over time. It emerged in the mid-19th century um, with the rise of a wider um, nation state and national liberation movements that were happening across Europe. Um, it has in itself morphed. Um, we saw kind of the late in the late 1800s, modern Zionism under Theodore Herzl really consolidated into an organized political movement. Um, but it has really since been co-opted, I think, as something that is viewed as colonialist or inherently negative by those who would oppose it. So when we talk about the two state solution, uh, what, in your view, are the key blockages to that? Yeah, so I would just start in kind of linking your first question to your second to say that Zionism does not in any way preclude the self-determination of Palestinians. To the contrary, I think what we have seen and continue to see in this conflict um, is really the impossibility that one can exist without the other. The idea that in order for Jews and um, Palestinians to live side by side in the Middle East, there must be some kind of separation between the two sides. Um, and what we are seeing now is really a moment where um, the deep dehumanization of both sides by both sides um, is really perpetuating this conflict. I think it's important to note also that this is ultimately a political conflict and not a religious conflict. And I think that's a source of great confusion for many observers who look at what is happening between Israel and its neighbors. Um, now, of course, since 1948, um, Israel has essentially sought you know, some kind of separation from the Palestinians. We've seen this take on many different forms. We've seen failed peace talks for decades. Um, I would say ultimately it's been a failure of political will that has kept us from achieving two states, but there were certainly for a long time major um, failures that surrounded key logistical questions, whether in attacks or Israeli settlement expansion that have led to recurring clashes. Um, we've seen dwindling support for two states over recent years, particularly as a younger generation has never seen um, the prospect of two states. They've never lived through any meaningful negotiations or change to the status quo. Um, I think that, you know, there are, there are a number of different obstacles that we have seen, that we have looked at, whether it's been over borders, security, the status of Jerusalem, refugees, um, Israel's insistence on um, being recognized as a Jewish state, or the Palestinians' political and geographical split between the West Bank and Gaza. Um, as a result of these kind of obstacles to the process, again, it has become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy whereby two states becomes more and more difficult as political leaders fall further and further away from that ambition. So you alluded to this, uh, you know, with your previous answer. And, uh, you know, before we talk about the October 7th attacks, I just sort of want to set the stage and just ask you about some of the biggest myths uh, that we're seeing about Israel in general, uh, the attacks uh, and the conduct of the war. Because I think 
we're all in our own echo chambers in this day and age on social media. We're all sharing, posting, and all of that. And I feel like there could be a lot of misinformation uh, and so on that's been occurring. So I'd love to hear, you know, what are some of the biggest myths that you have you've observed, uh, you know, as uh, we've seen this discourse uh, take place in the background of the conflict? I think that the discourse, particularly as it has played out on social media, has really been alarming in terms of the misinformation and disinformation um, that is being shared by all sides, frankly. I think there is, um, you know, the challenge that we see with information shared online is that there is no arbiter of truth. Um, And so what you have instead is two sides trying to carry forward a narrative um, wherein all reality becomes lost. Um, And it becomes extremely difficult to decipher what is in fact true and what is not. And part of it is simply lost in narrative and part of it is in deliberate efforts to misinform the public. Um, I think one of the key issues that has come up a lot is the question of genocide and whether or not Israel's intention um, is to commit genocide in the territories, and if so, what that genocide would look like. Um, I think, you know, uh, Ian Bremmer of Eurasia Group put this really well. Israel, um, Hamas has a genocidal intent, but not the genocidal ability. And Israel has the genocidal ability, but not the genocidal intent. Um, You hear language like this loaded into conversations around what is taking place. And, And you see this happening, not just in the context of this conflict, but really Um, as it relates to Israel all the time. It is hard to kind of go through piece by piece because there has been so much misinformation, whether it's AI, whether it's, um, you know, AI-generated images misleading what is happening, whether it is um, the fog of war. I think one of the things that we saw early on, of course, was the um, uh, bombing of a hospital where it became very unclear as to who was responsible for it. Um, And you saw misinformation that proliferated, including in mainstream news, not out of malintention, but really out of the challenge of deciphering what has taken place in the fog of war. And because we are living this war in real time on the Internet, um, the entire world is watching moment by moment, looking for reality um, and expecting and believing that everything they're hearing in those minute to minute updates is true. Um, you know, I think we see we we see both sides. I've seen um, denials of what took place on October seventh, and I realize we haven't even gotten into what took place on October seventh. Um, but one of the earliest things I saw that day, and in, in the days after, was um, footage of films like Fauda, where um, terrorists, you know, are actors who are playing out a role. Uh, being used online as a way to prove that what happened on October 7th was not real. Um, And we see a lot of these types of myths being perpetuated on the internet, um, again, either by people who are in denial about what took place or who are deliberately looking to misinform the public. So I think that this really is a pinnacle conflict of misinformation and disinformation. um, And that in and of itself has made it incredibly difficult to navigate. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think especially with a lot of the rapid fire reactions that a lot of folks think they need to have, whether it's in the media or on social media. Uh, So, you know, when we dive into the October 7th attacks, what was happening with the Israel-Gaza 
situation, for the lack of a better term, uh, before October 7th. What was the state of play on October 6th? Yeah. So whenever you are asked about history as it relates to the Israelis and the Palestinians, where you start is often a reflection of your political view. So it's always a little bit challenging to set your timeline, but let's kind of start around 1948 and kind of zip forward to where we were today. Gaza had been occupied by Egypt for nearly 20 years um, after 1948. Israel then occupied the Gaza Strip in 1967 and had remained until 2005. Um, building Jewish settlements, which it ultimately withdrew um, in 2005. As I mentioned, I'd been working for an organization at the time that was trying to promote a negotiated disengagement. Um, But what Israel did instead was it withdrew its troops and its settlers, um, but still retained control over Gaza's airspace, its borders, its shoreline. um, And under, uh, you know, many... And there's a question now under international law as to whether or not the territory should still be treated as occupied and the UN sees it still as being occupied. So that kind of takes us up to 2005. In 2006, Hamas had won um, elections and seized control of Gaza in what was a violent um, overthrow of its rival Fatah. Um, Since then, militants in Gaza have fought several wars with Israel. Egypt and Israel have maintained a partial blockade on the Strip, um, where they have, again, you know, not just in controlling borders, but have prevented the flow of people and goods from Gaza's borders. Um, And we have seen conflicts um, arise as Israel has sought to address the challenge posed by Hamas, a U.S.-designated terrorist organization, which controls the Strip. they had been in a ceasefire most recently, again, after a series of smaller conflicts between the two sides. Um, and in recent years, what we had really seen was a quiet peace between Israel and Hamas that was working. Um, I had written a piece about when the Trump negotiations were happening, um, a formalization about how well a negotiated agreement between Hamas and Israel was going. And through that agreement, Israel had extended work permits to Gazans, were allowing trade to increase, expanding the fishing zone, allowing bulldozers to enter. And they were doing this because Israel believed that Hamas wanted peace. So what happened really comes against the backdrop of a period of quiet. Very interesting. So, I mean, then the question is, you know, why did Hamas actually attack on October 7th? And I mean, if I'm Hamas... I would have totally anticipated this type of reaction that Israel has had. You know, it wouldn't have been without question that Israel would have uh, engaged in this war uh, in, in this manner, you know, after October 7th. So in your view, why did Hamas attack? Yeah, I think Hamas has said in its own words, and there have been some pretty extensive interviews with Hamas leadership, including in the New York Times over the last few weeks. And I, I would urge listeners to take a look. But in its own words, Hamas was looking to perpetuate armed struggle in camps. Um, the attacks, of course, happened against the backdrop of the potential peace agreement, a trilateral agreement between Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the United States that would have effectively left Palestinians behind. And we saw that through the normalization agreements that have been advancing since the Trump administration, where Israel has essentially said, You know, we don't need to pursue peace with the Palestinians in order to secure peace with our neighbors because 
the peace with our neighbors is in the interests of our neighbors. And Arab governments have increasingly come to that view that they are not willing to sacrifice the support, uh, that they're not willing to sacrifice their own national interests for the support of the Arab street for Palestinians. They will prioritize what is best for those countries. And so we saw um, Israel and the UAE reach an agreement, Israel and Morocco, Israel and Bahrain, um, with very little delivered to the Palestinians in exchange. And for many years, the standing view had been that in order for Israel to normalize with its neighbors, it was going to have to deliver peace with the Palestinians. Um, and so once that equation was dropped, it meant that the Palestinians were also dropped from the equation, that really there were no great defenders of the Palestinian people left in the Arab world who were willing to carry their cause forward. And so this was a moment where Hamas saw them fading into a relevancy. And you see polling now coming out of Gaza, where uh, constituents were asked, you know, who is the greatest champion of the Palestinian people? And the answer was overwhelmingly no one. And then the second, you know, it, you know, something in the teens was Russia, which just goes to show you how alone and isolated both the Palestinian people, but also the Palestinian leadership in Gaza are feeling in this moment. And so in this kind of moment of quiet, in the run-up to what could have been a historic agreement with the Saudis, Hamas felt that the only way to bring their cause forward was through a major armed resistance. And I do not believe, and, and Hamas says this, I think that they were very surprised by just how effective um, their operation ended up being. You know, in, in terms of how effective that operation was, I, I, and, you know, not to make a political statement or anything, but I've always felt as a casual observer that, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu has been more identified as a security prime minister, always sort of emphasizing security, which makes me all the more surprised that the Israeli government and the security apparatus was caught off guard. So, I mean, why were they caught off guard? And I guess, you know, a follow up to that is, you know, what is the public's perception uh, towards the prime minister right now? Yeah. So let's start with kind of the psychological side to this. And I alluded to this earlier. The accepted view in Israel and among analysts, myself included, was that Hamas was willing to accept calm in exchange for a relaxing of restrictions on Gaza and for an improvement in the lives of the Palestinian people. Um, and so Israel essentially believed that over the years of ceasefires in which they had allowed money to flow to Hamas, had allowed Hamas to thrive essentially in Gaza, negotiating directly with Hamas, rather than with Fatah in the West Bank, that they had bought complacency. And that was so ingrained in the Israeli psyche, and particularly among the political and military establishment, that they ignored any indication that Hamas was in fact preparing for this operation. So one of the stories that we've seen come you know, really to the fore is how Israeli soldiers, low-level Israeli soldiers, junior-level Israeli soldiers, predominantly women who serve as lookouts on the borders, sentries, I believe is the formal term, compiled detailed reports um, on Hamas's preparation for taking down the border, 
him for moving, for taking hostages out, for, you know, bombing areas of the border. It was all laid out in explicit detail and ignored by senior leadership. Now, this is really remarkable. The reason that it was ignored by senior leadership is something that is going to be investigated at length, but it seems to me it is a a confluence of issues, but really goes down to the main point here, which is that it ran so contrary to common uh, belief that they couldn't accept the possibility of what was going on. Now, look, what happened, all of the different pieces that Unraveled is going to be studied for many years to come in the run-up to the holidays, um, uh, security forces that would have otherwise been on the Gaza border were transferred over to the West Bank um, in order to support uh, and defend settlers in the West Bank. Um, we saw an over-reliance on the Gaza fence, um, again, an under-reliance on um, observed intelligence. Um, we've seen Israel's intelligence within Gaza grow increasingly stale, and we're seeing this play out in the conflict right now. There are so many different factors here that will be studied for a very long time. Um, But overall, I think it is, it's the complacency of the Israeli government. Let's shift gears into your second question, which is public perception towards Netanyahu right now. Surveys, polls in Israel show just abysmal, abysmal support for Netanyahu. Less than 4% of Israelis say that they trust Netanyahu right now. And he has still not taken responsibility for what happened. Polls show that 80% believes that he needs to. Three quarters of Israelis are calling for Netanyahu's resignation in the middle of a war. This is unheard of. The Israeli public rallies behind its leaders. Most countries rally behind their leaders in times of war. But the frustration and anger towards Netanyahu that this was able to happen that he failed to take responsibility, and then that he ultimately, at least in the earliest stages, prioritized a military operation against Hamas over the recovery of more than 200 hostages has only deepened the wrath of the Israeli public against Netanyahu and his handling of what is going on. He has politicized what took place. He refused to meet with the families of hostages because they came from left-wing communities that didn't support the Netanyahu government. He found time to meet with the Republic and the right very quickly, but those who did not support him, he did not take meetings with. I mean, he has continued to play politics at a moment where the country has needed unity. And it's really remarkable because, you mean, you know, like for Americans, you know, the similar context, I guess, at least somewhat would be 9-11. And in the aftermath of 9-11, we saw President George W. Bush at the time soar to approval ratings of, I think, 93%. So this is, I think, inherently the opposite of a rally around the flag, at least if you're identifying the leader, you know, as that flag. So uh, that's super interesting. Uh, and, you know, we'd need more podcasts to really cover, you know, the answers to those two questions. Uh, but how does the Israeli public uh, and also the global Jewish community and the diaspora uh, view the attacks and how do they view the current war? Yeah. So let's separate out. Let's talk about the Israeli public and then let's talk about the Jewish diaspora community. Starting with the Israeli public, what happened in Israel um, has I, I think the shock waves of what took place on October 7th are continuing to reverberate 
more than, you know, really almost two months into this. Um, Israel had lived alongside the Palestinians in a state of conflict since essentially the beginning of the country, but never had that conflict really been waged um, in their backyard in this way. It didn't resonate in the same way. People had, of course, lost loved ones in war, but at no point was to this extent their personal security so jeopardized. Israel is an incredibly small country. Um, I don't know anyone in Israel who does not either know someone who was killed or taken hostage or know of someone who was killed or taken hostage. I'll tell you a, a longtime family friend of mine, a woman I actually gave an award to um, about five years ago for her work and um, her, her dedicating her entire life to promoting peace. Her name was Vivian Silver, and so much has been written about her because she had dedicated so much of her life to this cause, was originally believed to be taken hostage and ultimately um, determined to have been killed, although they were only able to determine that after 38 days because her body had been so completely burned that, that they couldn't even find evidence of it. This is an experience that is shared now by all Israelis. There is a deep sense of shock and horror and anger and fear. There are more than 200,000 Israelis who have been displaced as a result of what has transpired, either having been moved away from the periphery with Gaza or having been moved uh, towards the south from the north out of fear of a northern front. Israelis feel that they cannot go back to their lives um, until Hamas is destroyed, or at least that there is no scenario that this could ever happen again. All that is to say, Israelis have been shaken to their core and are deeply traumatized. And that trauma is something that we are seeing play out in this war that really answers so many questions about why Israel is conducting the war it is conducting in the way that it is conducting it. Um, there's really nothing like this. This really is psychologically the 9-11 moment for Israel. This is uh, uh, this will be burned in the minds of Israelis um, in a way that is just irreparable. Um, again, remember, this is the largest killing of Jews since the Holocaust. It's just a huge and staggering number. And what took place was so deeply brutal um, and deeply personal. So that's how the Israeli public is thinking about what happened and also translates to how they're thinking about the war. Um, you know, the Israeli left is really battered. We've seen a huge shift in Israel over the years to the right. But people who had previously supported peace with their neighbors are now questioning that premise um, that maybe they were wrong, that it was it was their naivete that brought us to this moment. And that's a really sad place to be. Let's talk about the global Jewish community for a moment. So there is a vibrant discourse within the Jewish community, and we see that playing out around the world. And I think it's really important to point to that when we talk about the Jewish community. You know, in the U.S., um, there were, you know, close to, say, 290,000 Jewish protesters who took to the street in support of Israel's war against Hamas. Um, it's important to remember that, you know, according to Pew, about 16% of Jews say Israel is unimportant to their identity, which means that the rest of the Jewish community 
believes that Israel is important to their identity. So you've seen a swelling of support among world Jewry on the one hand, and that support has taken on the form of posters being plastered around the world in support of the hostages, money being funneled to kibbutzim and to um, others in Israel who are displaced to support efforts to, you know, kind of enable Israel to sustain itself while this war is happening. But at the same time, some of the most vocal opponents of this war have also been Jewry around the world, whether it's Jewish Voices for Peace or other groups who have called for a ceasefire. Now, I would point out that on a numbers basis, the the latter, which is calling for a ceasefire, is certainly uh, less significant in numbers than those who are supporting Israel. Um, But it really just reflects, again, the diversity of views within the Jewish community, um, one that also cuts across, that that varies based on generations. No, certainly. And I mean, you know, I want to go back to a point you made earlier in terms of the psychological effect uh, and that has sort of permeated into how Israel is conducting the war and the manner in which it's conducting the war. And I mean, to many folks, uh, you know, it appears that it feels like and looks like Israel is carpet bombing Gaza. I mean, it's hard to come to a conclusion other than that when you look at a lot of the images that are coming from Gaza. So, you know, I'd love to sort of ask, you know, like uh, from what you know and from what you've uh, read, but uh, how is the IDF uh, operating in Gaza right now? How are they assessing proportionality? And I mean, how are they viewing civilian casualties? Because it feels like so many civilians are dying in this in this war. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I don't think that anyone can look at this war and the number, see the number of civilians who have been killed, women, children, whether it's Israelis or Palestinians, and not feel a deep sense of agony at what is taking place. We are seeing civilian casualties at rates that are unfounded. Um, And the Israelis would argue that, um, you know, the situation is unfounded, that they're dealing with a density in Gaza that is unprecedented, with the challenge of, um, you know, the Gaza, um, Hamas has set up a tunnel operation in Gaza that's about half the size of the New York subway system that runs throughout the Gaza Strip um, where they conduct their operations. It's how they have long smuggled in weaponry, reappropriated humanitarian goods, taken them underground, stored them, and that is what has enabled them to carry out this attack in the first place. And it is for that reason that Israel is deeply skeptical of humanitarian aid and very resistant to calls of proportionality because the Israelis will say, what looks to you like carpet bombing is the only type of bombing that can be done in order to actually take out these tunnels. Um, Now, whether or not that's correct is a real point of contention because as i said before the civilian casualty toll is just organizing and unprecedented so from israel's perspective what they've done is they focused first on the north um where they focused on key gaza key hamas strongholds in gaza across the north evacuating people to the south um, dropping, you know, engaging in, in heavy bombing um, before they ultimately engaged and began a ground operation, which is currently paused under a ceasefire. 
And they focused first on taking out rocket launchers. It's important to remember that throughout this conflict, Hamas has continued to launch rockets across Israel. Um, those rockets have been stopped for the most part by Iron Dome, but Iron Dome batteries are limited. And so Israel's first priority is taking out those launchers. Then it looks to take out um, Hamas leadership um, and to undermine Hamas's structure that way. So that's how their operation has focused. Now, in the process, um, the civilian casualty toll has been staggering. And Israel will tell you that that is because Hamas uses uh, civilians as human shields, setting up rocket launchers and operations in schools and UNRWA buildings and hospitals um, and in areas that are so impossibly dense that you can't possibly take out those targets without also killing civilians. Um, it has slowly throughout this war increased humanitarian efforts under pressure from the United States and the international community, whether that was allowing for pauses in order for people to evacuate to the South um, or uh, increasing the amount of humanitarian aid that has been able to come in, which is now reaching uh, finally more considerable levels under the pause. Um, but to most international observers, these measures fall far short. The question of proportionality comes up often, and I, I think that it's a word that's really thrown around. And I, I won't pretend to be an international law expert, and I want to lay that out because I'm I'm frustrated by hearing so many who pretend to be that. Um, international law is based off of norms. It's not as if there's a single book that lays out what is and is not. But proportionality um, really is about the balance of two concepts. It's about what you need to do to attain a military advantage and what the potential damage is to civilian life and property. Proportionality is not about whether or not the same number of civilians are killed or the same number of targets are taken out. And I think that's a common misconception. Um, what proportionality does, though, is prohibits excessive attack. Now, defining excessive is where things become really difficult. Israel would say that it does not engage in, you know, indiscriminate bombing against targets. Each target has a very specific and clear reason behind it. They're not just dropping indiscriminately. On the other hand, the pace with which they have been carrying out this operation is so fast and so aggressive that it is impossible that they are able to give the slow and careful weight to each target as it's carried out for the impact of civilian damage. And we've seen this kind of play out, including around Al-Shifa Hospital. We saw Israel, Israel could have just bombed Al-Shifa Hospital, it didn't. So you see a certain level of caution um, taken there as they understood and recognized that there are responsibilities under international law to protect civilian infrastructure, specifically hospitals. On the other hand, um, a huge number of casualties have come with that operation. So I think the question of proportionality is one that will continue to be debated and one that Israel is going to continue to have to debate. Where we're going to need to turn our attention to is what happens after the current ceasefire and what happens in the South. Israel believes that many Hamas operatives, terrorists, have now fled to the South. It has its eyes on Khan Yunus and in Rafah, um, where they are continuing to operate, operating in tunnels much the same as they had been operating in the North, except Israel had evacuated people to the South. Um, in order to enable its operations in the north. And there is nowhere for those people to return to. 
So there's much talk now of how to move people out of that area into camps or into other temporary dwellings um, so that Israel can continue to take out Hamas. But it is impossible to envision that it will be able to do what it hopes to accomplish militarily without a growing civilian toll. So how is the Israeli government and perhaps even the Israeli public, how are they perceiving these calls for a ceasefire? You're seeing all these protests around the world uh, calling for, I think, a longstanding ceasefire and not the uh, several day ceasefire that we are uh, currently seeing. And again, for our audience, we are recording this on Monday, November 27th, uh, the afternoon. So really anything can change. Uh, very rapidly between the time of this recording and between the time of this uh, episode publication. Uh, but, you know, how are those calls for a long-standing ceasefire actually being perceived? And is a ceasefire actually practical from a security standpoint? Yeah, I think that first there was even a reluctance before this ceasefire to support a ceasefire. And so on the one hand, you had the families of hostages and an entire Israeli public deeply moved by the plight of those hostages wanting to see their recovery and understanding the direct contradiction between Israel's continued bombing campaign and the absence of a negotiated solution that would then in turn recover the hostages, which is to say that the only real way to get hostages out in significant numbers is through a negotiated agreement with Hamas. It is not through rescue and recovery. That is a myth. Um, and so Israelis saw that. And so on the one hand, you have this, this kind of real internal contradiction. You had people who were even opposed to a temporary ceasefire because there is such a deep fear over how that would advantage Hamas, um, but at the same time wanting to see those people rele- released. Since the temporary ceasefire was announced, which was announced um, to take place over four days in exchange for a total of 50 hostages. And it was announced today that that ceasefire will likely be extended for at least two days. There is the possibility that the ceasefire would go on for up to 10 days, so long as hostages continue to be released. And Israeli support for this temporary ceasefire has been widespread. Um, the images of hostages coming home, being reunited with families has captivated Israelis. It is plastered across televisions. It is deeply moving and incredibly meaningful for the Israeli people to see these children and elderly women returning home. And so the temporary ceasefire has seen widespread widespread support, even if it was politically controversial before it was reached. A long-term ceasefire um, will not see widespread support in Israel in the near future. And let's talk about why. Again, what we talked about earlier, what has happened in Israel is such a fundamental shift in the Israeli mentality. Israelis believe that what happened was an existential threat to the state. They are now dealing with an existential crisis wrought by Hamas, which is not what they believe they were dealing with before. They do not feel safe and will not feel safe until Hamas is destroyed. Now, past Israeli Uh, wars with Hamas have sought to restore deterrence. They've sought to convince Hamas not to attack Israel, to buy Israel time, to essentially deplete their capabilities and deter them for a fixed period of time. And then, you know, with the expectation that in a few years time, there would be a resumption in uh, 
in violence that would, again, yield concessions to Hamas. And this has really been the cycle of conflict between Israel and Hamas that we have seen played out. Israelis are not willing to accept a return to that cycle. Deterrence by their perspective is simply not enough. And so you continue to have widespread support in Israel that there cannot be any secession of the war until Hamas has been removed from government. Now, how far it needs to go beyond that, I think Bibi has used some pretty um, extreme rhetoric that he frankly can't deliver on, meaning the elimination of Hamas as opposed to removing Hamas from government. Um, But Israelis widely support that. So when we talk about the day after, the day after this war, uh, if there is a day after, uh, what happens to Gaza? I mean, after this war, uh, whose responsibility is Gaza after the war? I mean, what does the aftermath look like? Yeah, so I think this is one of the most difficult questions facing not just Israelis and Palestinians, but the entire international community today. And one of the biggest challenges is that the Israelis have not given this any serious thought and that every outcome that they or the international community has put forward has very legitimate reasons to cast aside. So one of Israel's key objectives as it laid out this war was the return of hostages, the elimination of Hamas, and um, that Israel would no longer have any responsibilities to Gaza. That's the vision that the Israelis have laid out, that they would not have responsibilities to Gaza. Now, for them, that can mean a number of different things. They, The Israelis, you know, many right-wing Israelis have long wanted Egypt to resume responsibility for Gaza. In the new scenarios I've seen Israelis lay out, they have looked for some kind of coalition of Arab leaders to come take responsibility for Gaza. That is a wildly unrealistic proposition. Arab leaders are not going to want come in and essentially clean up Israel's mess with no legitimacy among the Palestinian people um, who will have been completely devastated by what has been taking place. So you have that kind of scenario, which would be kind of the dream scenario of the Israelis, but that is not rooted in reality. The second scenario is a scenario where what that the U.S. has laid out, which would be that the Palestinian Authority led by Fatah would um, regain control of Gaza. And that similarly comes with significant challenges because at this stage, Fatah is not is seen as corrupt. They are weak in the West Bank. Um, the mere fact that they have cooperated with Israel and delivered nothing in exchange for their people has only further undermined their legitimacy in the West Bank. And so the idea that they would then come parading into Gaza off the backs of an Israeli war to take control over the territory, which they have never previously sought, also comes with significant significant questions. But that is certainly the scenario where at least you would have Palestinians leading Palestinians. Um, I think uh, there are a number of other things that could play out. There's a move on the far, far right in Israel for Israel to reoccupy Gaza. Um, There are in less fringe spaces an expectation that Israel will maintain a security perimeter that includes parts of Gaza that looks more similar to the West Bank. You could have a situation where, um, you know, similar 
the West Bank is currently divided between three areas, area A, B, and C, areas that um, the Palestinian Authority completely control, that have joint control, or that Israel controls. And in areas that um, are controlled by the Palestinian Authority, you have places where Israel is able to maintain a security presence. That is likely what the Israelis are going to pursue in Gaza, where they would then be able to enter at their will um, to address security threats as they arise, which they are going to continue to arise. You know, even if Israel were to eliminate Hamas, as they say is their intention, it's important to remember that Hamas in some ways is the rational actor within uh, Gaza. You also have groups like Palestinian Islamic Jihad and other militia organizations, all of whom are believed now to have captives as well, who are deeply radicalized and who will not be eliminated. Um, to the contrary, I think once Hamas is eliminated, other extremist groups are going to pop up and fill the void. Um, it is very difficult to envision a scenario where um, Israel does not continue to deal with the threat in Gaza. Now, all that being said, I think the most optimistic visions are that the only way the Palestinians can retake Gaza would be through a meaningful two-state negotiation that gives um, real um territorial uh integrity that reconnects the two um the west bank and gaza and gives people control dignity a real peaceful outcome and perhaps it is a crisis like this that was necessary to bring us um to an ambition that so many have held for such a long time which would be you know real two-state outcome. But I'm not optimistic, but I am always hopeful. I want to touch on this briefly, but I mean, obviously, the U.S.-Israel relationship is uh, very strong. Uh, what is the nature of the security relationship between the U.S. and Israel? Like, I mean, I think, what are some key myths around that security relationship? And I mean, I think particularly within the Democratic Party, uh, there are concerns that, you know, President Joe Biden will lose support, political support, uh, for his uh, support of Israel. Uh, do you think that U.S. support for Israel overall will just decline in the future? Yeah. So let's start with what the kind of relationship looks like now. First of all, it's important to remember that the vast majority of the American public supports a strong U.S.-Israel relationship. And that's not because of a large Jewish diaspora community in the United States. That's because there is a very large and politically active evangelical community. Religious Christians in America are deeply supportive of Israel. Um, and they exercise significant political influence around the U.S. So I think one of the biggest myths is this kind of Jewish control of the U.S. government um, or Jewish control that is dictating support for Israel. Um, where you start to see support erode, and I alluded to this earlier, is that there is a generational divide between that support. So boomers and then older generation tend to be deeply supportive of Israel and the younger generation, um, millennials downward, tend to be less supportive of Israel. And, and we'll come back to that also when we talk about kind of what the future of that relationship looks like. Um, but because of that, the relationship has always been very strong, but that strength has also been rooted in a mutually beneficial security relationship. So, for example, one of the key military tools that Israel has to defend itself now from rockets coming out of Gaza is Iron Dome. And that was technology that was originally by Israel, but now is essentially co-funded and co-used by the U.S. government and by Israel. 
Um, so there are some significant you know, strategic issues at stake. Because of that, what we have seen is really significant U.S.-Israel, U.S. support for Israel over the years, whether it's through a um, memorandum of understanding um, that essentially allowed for $3.3 billion in annual foreign military financing, um, plus an additional 500 mil- missile defense funding for Israel that's already standing. And um, in addition to that, the administration has asked since October 7th for an emergency supplemental package to Israel, $14 billion um, that would provide Israel air and missile defense support. It's important to remember that that money is typically spent in the United States on U.S. manufactured um, military um, supplies, whether it's Iron Dome batteries or elsewhere. But that has been a really important and integral um part of Israel, of the U.S. support for Israel, and really the most tangible manifestation of American support for Israel through the years. And, you know, the the MOU that was 10 years old was signed by the Obama administration, even at a time of emotional tensions between the administration and Israel, you saw this rock-solid security assistance. Since October 7th happened, we've also seen the U.S. deploy to aircraft carriers, Um, to the Mediterranean to send a message to the region not to escalate. Um, 2,000 troops were put on alert um, to prepare to deploy. We've seen, you know, U.S., uh, the USS Kearney shot down missiles from Houthi-controlled Yemen. The U.S. has become involved in this conflict in a way that they never have before, albeit still in a relatively limited way. Um, So, it's, it's notable, it's significant, and it is ongoing. And it has been really important for Israeli kind of emotions to feel U.S. support for them in a conflict where they are becoming increasingly isolated. I think as the casualty toll continues to tick up, you will see international support for Israel in this conflict erode only further. And it has already eroded. There is very limited support for Israel in the international community at this stage, um, sparing, you know, the UK, um, a few European companies and uh, countries, and of course, the United States. Um, Even that support will continue to erode as the casualty numbers increase. Um, In terms of kind of the over time big picture, as I mentioned, young people tend to be less supportive of Israel. And it is impossible not to assume that the relationship between Israel and the United States will also erode over time as that generation comes into power. That said, I believe we are at really a major change moment in the conflict. Israel and the Palestinians as we knew them. This conflict as we knew it before is the past. It's a moment in history. I think we will come out of this maybe in five years from now, maybe longer, with a totally changed dynamic and landscape. Um, And that will create all sorts of opportunities for reassessing the relationships that Israel has with the global community and similarly the Palestinians have. Well, on that note, Carmiel, thank you so much for joining me here today. This was a very uh, enlightening conversation. I really appreciated your perspectives, your knowledge, and your insights. Uh, Thank you so much again. Thanks so much, Andre.